going to focus on one case study in the realm of counterterrorism and countering violent extremism. And this is for a few reasons. First, this is an unclassified approach that I can speak openly about from end to end. No part, no line of effort was covert, clandestine, or considered sensitive in any way, shape, or form. Secondly, every single technique that I discussed and we discuss in seminar, every single one of them can be applied to most any political, hybrid, irregular, unconventional, or asymmetric strategy, as well as to strategies in conventional war and importantly, great power competition. The third reason is despite our focus at NDU on great power competition, violent extremist organizations, right-wing, left-wing, Iranian-backed, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Boko Haram, Abu Sayyaf, Al-Shabaab, in many areas they are on the rise again, and they are part of the global environment as we still continue to face China and Russia. So the types of counter of violent extremist organizations that we're going to discuss to counter via an influenced tradecraft are those that are less structured, fluid, flat, ideological revolts that try to blend into populations. So this is very similar to what I discussed a couple weeks ago when we talked about narratives and networks, but here we're not focused on the narratives of violent extremists and lessons learned. We're instead focusing how can we influence networks to undermine violent extremism. So we're looking at it from the other side. More specifically, I'm referring to Al-Qaeda, its offspring like ISIS, branches, its affiliates, its supporters, and its occasional allies, such as Al-Shabaab, Abu Sayyaf, and even at times, perhaps, arguably, Boko Haram. These organizations occasion, occasionally show some elements of being complex, adaptive systems, and perhaps almost leaderless movements. And we've seen once again in Africa and South Asia, for example, that jihadists are once again going underground, dispersing to safe havens, uh, and transitioning overall into an underground organization, as prior iterations of Al-Qaeda and ISIS have done before. Importantly, any semblance of a state and army apparatus seems to stand on the shoulders of a simultaneously tribally embedded nebulous insurrection, more fluid, resilient, a more fluid, uh, resilient ideological revolt that blends into the public with narrative hooks that may resonate locally with the view ultimately to radicalize populations from the bottom up. Arguably, one violent extremist strength is that ability to mobilize a minority of a minority of any given population. And this may be uh, for safe haven, for recruits, but really it's to inspire future generations because of the inevit inevitability of leadership deaths at the tactical, operational, and strategic level. So this tradecraft focuses on denying violent extremists their slim support. And it poses that perhaps only civil society, as the main effort, if you will, can deny violent extremist influence enduringly. And even security forces cannot be at all places at all times, not even in police states. Even in police states, we're seeing the rise of some streams of violent extremism. 
this very much plays into the United States counterterrorism end state that has been more or less un unchanged since actually 1952, which is areas and populations enduringly resistant to violent extremist influence and presence, where civil society plays a key role in permanently starving violent extremists of recruitment and safe haven. So we're going to focus on identifying, enabling, and empowering subtly from a distance native networks that will allow us to further our strategic goals. Native networks that are already in the throes of trying to starve violent extremists of recruitment, safe haven, and future presence and influence. The tradecraft is dubbed consonance and resonance. Now, some students find these terms very helpful. Some students, they find the terms not terribly helpful. And I think a lot of it has to do if you have a background in music, people kind of intrinsically find them helpful. Um, if you don't have a background in physics or in, in music theory, um, the really important thing to take away with the use of these terms, consonance and resonance, is that we use the terms to underline that this is an exercise in extreme minimalism. Okay? It's doing less with less. It does not call for arming or paying for, it does not call for arms or money or any kind of message creation. So consonance literally is a harmony or agreement amongst components. Practically, this is the step when we identify networks who are already in the throes of operating towards the goals that are shared with the U.S. government. This is the who of the tradecraft. We want to identify civil society networks and systems and linchpins as well as those in a foreign government whose goals are already in consonance with the goals of the United States government. And to do this, we have to put on a sort of lens to conduct what I like to call population appreciation. In the same way that a scout sniper will conduct terrain appreciation, will look at hills and fingers and valleys and decide the best location from which to execute a mission, we want to be able to look out at a population and see whose goals jive with our goals and whose do not. And importantly, we want to do this independent of title. So examples could be natural leaders, community leaders, neighborhood leaders, religious leaders, youth group leaders, women's rights leaders, business leaders. And it could also mean, instead of just rhetoric, it could be focusing on those that use weapons in the kinetic uh, field. For example, legitimate, meaning in the eyes of local populations, legitimate, natural, and sometimes lawful militias, for example, of the Pashtun, Arbakai, and Lashkars, which are Arbakai are essentially temporary defensive militias in, in some Pashtun cultures, and Lashkars are, more, are larger, more offensive, and um, for a longer period of time, militias that will, in some cases in Pakistan and Afghanistan, go out of their way to seek out uh, and capture or kill violent extremists. 
Now, as I said last week, we want to ensure that network, networks are capable, that they have the will and the potency on their own to at least attempt to achieve the goals that are in consonance with the goals of the U.S. government. We want to, as much as reasonable, as much appro as appropriate, we want to ensure that these are forces for stability. They have a stabilizing factor, if you will, or a stabilizing spine to the movement, and that they're resilient, that they can come back from hardship, and that if, for example, one charismatic leader is killed or captured uh, or exiled, that the movement will still continue. We want to ensure a good return on investment. The second part of the tradecraft is dubbed resonance, which is literally a reinforcement by vibration of a neighboring object. So the focus here is that literally within physics and in music, that you ring a certain bell or a certain note on a musical instrument, and seemingly or invisibly, because you can't see the sound waves, um, the other instrument or note or bell rings. So you're causing another object to vibrate through invisible means without touching that other object. Practically speaking, this is when we amplify, enable, or leverage consonant networks, meaning networks whose goals are in consonance with the goals of the U.S. government. This is the how. So consonance is the who. It's identifying certain native networks. And resonance is the how in enabling, amplifying, or leveraging those networks. And we want to do so as subtly, as silently, as distantly, and as invisibly as appropriate and possible. And this is because, as we've discussed before, but it's important to note again that Native networks, we don't want them to lose their seeming independence, especially if their independence is considered a source of strength for their influence. They want to be independent, perhaps, of local government. Perhaps they want to be seen as independent of the U.S. government and her allies. And so we want to conduct resonance as appropriate, in some cases, by, with, and through other entities, uh, along with layered strategic deception. Resonance is about enabling constant networks and their narratives. It's about setting the conditions for them to thrive, because these constant networks may very well outfight and outlast malign actors, their influence, and the incursion. That really time is on their side, where they oftentimes see violent extremist ideology and violent extremist foreign fighters as the actual oppressors or the outsiders, if you will. The idea is even at a, if you are focused at a tactical level, for example, one village cluster in Eastern or Western Africa, that you can still have strategic effects because it may very well generate effects generation after generation. So time-wise, enduringly, you may have strategic effects. Now, constant networks can affect society in a number of ways, and this is discussed in the Leader Die article a bit, and is discussed more thoroughly in the video. So those that are against violent extremists may be able to affect other parts of the population well. And so in this case, 
I want you to imagine a bell curve. And on the x-axis, you have uh, the number of, you have how extreme people are, which of course is a very subjective and difficult term. So towards the right, you have violent extremists who conduct attacks. On the very left side, you have those elements of civil society that go out of the way to proactively stop or stem or lessen the influence of violent extremists. And then on the y-axis, you have the number of people. And so on the left side, which is a small minority of the population, you have those that are actively working against violent extremism with weapons or with words. Then in the middle, the bulge, if you will, of the bell curve, you have the vast majority of people, the apathetic masses, the people that are don't really care one way or the other. They may not have um, anything to fight about, that they're focused on putting food on the table, they're focused on getting access to potable water, they're focused on the safety and well-being and education of their children, and they're focused on soccer. Then you have those amongst the apathetic masses who may be susceptible to radicalization. And I need to stress here, like I have stressed before on a podcast and in some of the seminars, that there is no terrorist profile, no global terrorist profile, at least not one that the U.S. government or U.S. scholars can agree upon since 1952. There seems to be no behavioral, psychological, familial, societal, economic, education, ideological, ethnic, cultural, criminal, religious, or political profile that fits the bill every time, at least not one that's been uncovered yet. There are many complex, varied, disparate roads into and out of the radicalization process. However, at the tactical level, at the local level, you may be able to find some trends in some places. And then finally, on the right side, the sort of small side again of this bell curve, you have that small minority of minority on the extreme right who actually conduct and execute violent extremist attacks, who are willing to kill and to die for violent extremist beliefs. And if we inch just a little bit leftward, you have your financiers, you have your moral religious leaders, uh, and you have those perhaps providing some sort of tacit uh, support. So one way, one approach to counter, sort of traditional approach to counterterrorism, countering violent extremism, is you want to target directly all parts of the population. You want to target those against violent extremism. You want to target those apathetic masses. You want to target those specifically susceptible to radicalization. And you also want to target those who support or conduct violent extremism. Another approach which we talk about, or which, for which we apply the influence tradecraft of constant resonance, is we focus mainly on those who are already acting against violent extremists. That very often they may be in a good place to target the other parts of society. So they may target the apathetic masses to prevent them from supporting violent extremism in the future, and perhaps activating some of them to their side, working, in some cases passionately, 
to undermine violent extremism. They may very well be in a good, in a good place to dissuade some people that may be susceptible to radicalization. And they may be able to have effects on against violent extremism in numerous ways. Of course, in some cases, if you're talking about legitimate militias and neighborhood watch forces, those that are capturing and killing violent extremists or those that are working with a government to arrest or kill violent extremists. But also, you may see these constant systems focus on violent extremism to sow seeds of doubt, to promote subversion, to promote infighting, to lessen the legitimacy, and to promote disengagement with honor. Ultimately, these constant systems may be in a good place to drive an irreparable wedge between violent extremists and people, to make areas enduringly resistant to violent extremist influence, presence, and future incursion, and ultimately to isolate violent extremist leaders and true believers, those that are unlikely to demobilize or de-radicalize for follow-on targeted security missions. There certainly is contemporary precedent to focus on, enable, and leverage consonant networks that are already fighting to undermine violent extremists. In the last 20 years, violent extremists have stated again and again openly that their greatest fear is popular resistance movements. And this is seen in a number of edicts, in a number of memoranda, and in a number of essays that have been written uh, on five continents that we have found in multiple languages. We also find that when violent extremists, right before they come to an area, before they are, for example, Islamic State tries to take over an area in Eastern um, Africa, they will first and foremost target anyone that seems to revolt or want to revolt or in the past has revolted against violent extremists, either rhetorically or kinetically. They feel that they are most vulnerable from native networks and narratives that counter and undermine violent extremists. And they will do this before they come to an area. They will do this before they target those cell towers and those radio towers to try to dominate the information environment, and certainly well before they turn their weapons onto formal security forces. And one of the things I'm going to do in seminar is show a number of case studies where the Taliban target specifically, for example, scholars of Islam, where ISIS kills uh, Sunni tribesmen um, that have rised up against, uh, uh, before against Al-Qaeda, for example. And we're going to look at a few case studies uh, on other, in other countries, other continents. So how do we identify consonant systems? Well, the first is you want to look for places that are maybe ripe for constant systems, places, areas uh, where you're more likely to successfully find constant systems. The first thing is you're looking for places where there is currently relative security. Because without any security, any constant systems, any revolt against violent extremists is going to be cut off immediately. You're also looking for places that are economically independent of violent extremists. Because we find that 
if locals are dependent on violent extremists, for example, in the cot trade or the opium trade or in any legal or legitimate trade, oftentimes they're unlikely to bite the hand that feeds. You're also looking for areas that have been recently victim to persistent, wanton, violent extremist attacks. These civil society native movements against violent extremists, they're often not done at a ideological, purely ideological or academic level. Instead, oftentimes it's very visceral. They have family members that have been mutilated and killed by violent extremists or kidnapped by violent extremists, and they understand what will actually happen if groups like ISIS or Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, what will happen if they come back and try to take over their area again. One thing that I like to do if I show up into a new area is I either try to talk with the intelligence professionals that are focused on that area, or I simply open up local, news station, uh, local newspapers, listen to local radio, and I want to find out who are violent extremists targeting, physically and rhetorically. Because very often in these areas, violent extremists, they will know who these resilient consonant systems or networks are better than us. Now, this is not going to give you a perfect list. There's a number of reasons why violent extremists want to target people. However, this will give you a starting point, a list of individuals, of networks, in some cases clans or tribes, even businesses, uh, communities that uh, violent extremists are afraid of. Of course, we have to find out why, but again, it'll give you a list, a starting point. I also like to look at regional surveys. Now, as we've discussed in some of the seminars before, and we'll discuss much more in the second half of the semester, uh, many surveys and polls in unstable, insecure areas are deeply, deeply flawed. And we're going to go over this in bloody detail especially in uh, Lessons 9, 10, and 11. However, if you look at many surveys over a long period of time, let's say over the period of a decade, you may find trends. And this may be very helpful too. And one of the most common questions that's asked by humanitarian groups, stabilization groups, development groups, security forces, and by scholars is some version of to whom do you go to solve your problems? They're trying to figure out, in other words, who are the real influencers in this area. Maybe it is a member of the government, provincial government, for example, or maybe it is a clan leader or a religious leader or someone you wouldn't otherwise have expected. So this is an extremely common question. I tried to find this question or version of it and in over a survey that's been done for a number of years, and then I look at other surveys, and I try to see if I can find some trends. As much as possible, we want to look for those constant networks that do not support warlordism and civil strife. So as I said before, we want to look for forces that are gonna have long-term stability. Now this is nearly impossible to perfectly predict, of course. But just because it's difficult doesn't mean we shouldn't try. 
And we also want to look for resilience. We want to look for deputies that are ready to take over. And as way of an example, one of the Arbakai that I was um, embedded with for a short amount of time, they had a Arbakai leader who was one of these great charismatic leaders. He was an ideological leader. Uh, he believed in educating, educating his children, grandchildren, and his great-grandchildren, who I had the honor of, to meet, uh, to educate them so that they would not be susceptible to radicalization in the future. But he understood, and when I interviewed him a number of times, he understood fully that he had a target on his back. He was also an older man. He was also living in a country that does, didn't have great health care. So he understood at any moment he, become, he could become injured or killed. And in fact, after the last interview I had with him, the Taliban executed him uh, two days after the last interview I had with him. And that very week, he had five sons that he previously had brought to meetings. He had brought into the field to determine you know, which ones were going to be the military or militant commanders, which one were going to be sort of on the council, the peace commanders, if you will, or the peace, uh, peacemakers, uh, which ones were going to help with development, which ones are going to help with education, and which ones are going to perhaps defend uh, the farms, the homeland. And the five sons took over. And the movement continued. And the movement, as far as I know from the data that I have, continues to this day. Right now, it's not in the form of going after insurgency. It's in the form of an insurgency against the ruling Taliban in that particular area of northern Helmand. So the nature of constant systems, and this plays to foundational narratives, so the subconscious, and it plays to the narratives that seem to drive and to identify with and provide meaning for people uh, who oftentimes go out of their way to fight violent extremists. And the nature of constant systems is a focus, a dedication to self-determination. And I mean this as a means and an end state. So self-determination meaning that they are uh, using their own materials, they're counting only on themselves, they understand that the burden, the responsibility is on them to keep their area secure and stable, and as an end state. But this, oddly, it does not mean regime change. It's specifically freedom from the oppression of violent extremists. Oftentimes, it's because of preserve, or they want to preserve traditional governance systems, perhaps tribal or clan-like systems. Very often, they will wrap themselves in the flag of nationalism, which, again, time and again, is something that I found to be kind of counterintuitive. But if they felt that a central power, uh, an example would be some of the areas in Pakistan and some areas in Afghanistan, as well as some areas of the Sahel, they believed that if the government, the national and provincial government, if they allowed relative self-determination, this is something that um, resonated with those local constant systems. So it's not about regime change. It's about relative self-determination, normally that they've had traditionally. And it's about 
fair political enfranchisement. So they don't feel like they're on the outs. They have some voice in the future of any political um, system. And very often they wear a very anti-alien ideology. They see violent extremists as the outsiders, as the potential oppressors. So what this looks like on the ground is local actors using local solutions for local problems with local materials and something that's been very difficult for me throughout my career and for many Americans is they're going to do so on a local timeline. Ultimately, they're turning the violent extremist narrative on its head. One main violent extremist narrative hook is innocence under attack. And these consonant systems or consonant networks, they're saying, yes, you're right. Violent extremists are correct. Innocents are under attack. But the people that are attacking the innocents are violent extremists, more so than outside powers, more so than perhaps a central government. Now, this isn't the case everywhere, but this is a common narrative of constant systems. So innocents are under attack. Violent extremists, they become, narratively, if you will, the occupiers, the imperialists, the outsiders. And if we are to play a role, if for some reason we need to look at the mirror at the end of the day and know that we've done some good work, we become the silent enablers of liberation. And so I'm going to show in seminar uh, a number of sample interviews uh, where people in different countries talk about why they do what they do, why they are working against violent extremism. And these sentiments are chosen, or these quotes are chosen, because I think they're a pretty good and fair balanced representation of how many of these movements feel. So one quote, I will fight until I truly feel freedom and security. I will fight until this. This is a struggle to liberate women. And this is a uh, Libyan teacher specifically uh, and why she wants to continue to educate kids uh, so that they are resilient against violent extremist influence and recruitment in the future. She says, I am afraid, afraid, afraid. I couldn't say no to them. This is to the children. I couldn't say no to their children. In this case, she's talking about uh, the parents of the children. I felt it was a duty to teach these children. My conscience demanded it, despite death threats and despite a very insecure area. Another sentiment, I don't need a tank. I don't need a plan. I don't even need a single bullet. I will use my sticks and I will use the guns my people have already to defend my area. Another quotation from the uh, Sinjar resistance unit. Uh, I think this one, yeah, this one's in Syria. We know we don't need anyone to help us now because we help ourselves. So now I want to go into that we've talked a little bit about how to identify um, whether it's looking at a certain area or the certain qualities or the nature and the narratives of constant systems. Now I want to push into the second half of or the second part of the tradecraft, which is resonance. This is when we enable or empower or leverage or allow constant systems to thrive. So the first point, very importantly, is very often we want to avoid any kind of intervention whatsoever. 
something seems to be working, sometimes it's best to keep distance and at most to observe and report. As one Green Beret commander uh, that I worked with said to me, sometimes the best course of action, Howard, is to stay in your effing tent. And this is something that has echoed in my brain in perpetuity. Um, and this is something that I've heard again and again by uh, MARSOC uh, and Marines as well as by Green Beret in that uh, very often doing nothing is the best, most constructive course of action. And this is something that's very difficult for a lot of people. This is very difficult for those of us that are on five or six month, month rotations or very difficult if we want to feel like we're doing something. Um, and we want to kind of focus on our own activities and performance. The second point is this is really a little less interventionalist than no intervention, which is, or a little more interventionalist rather than no intervention, which is to affect a security buffer. Okay, that we find that very often, once there is some level of security, that constant groups, constant leaders, will come out through the woodwork. They will come out and provide governance for themselves, provide some semblance of security for themselves, will look to development, education, and other things that may help towards societal capacity. Now this does not mean U.S. boots on the ground. This can be by, with, and through other security forces. In some cases is by, with, and through security forces who then train security forces in another country. Maybe that's part of the Africa Union, for example. So it's by, with, and through. They're training by, with, and through a neighboring country. And those people go out into the field and actually train tribal elders. So it's by, with, and through, by, with, and through, by, with, and through, three times over. You can also conduct, do this through sabotage, through subversion, through psychological warfare, through counterfinance and there's a number of other clandestine approaches. Finally, you can train content systems on the tradecraft of resonance. And oftentimes this is done by, with, and through uh, security force assistance missions. And what I have found when I have done this, um, if there's not a formal training environment, is it's a matter of sitting down and asking questions and listening, oddly enough. It's not about uh, hi, my name is Howard. I've been here for five days. Let me educate you on how to counter violent extremism. No, it's me sitting down and listening and allowing the audience, allowing the person I'm talking to, who I believe has the potential to go out and train other, uh, or train other native systems uh, and networks, other constant systems and networks. Um, I want them to come to their own conclusion. I want them to feel empowered. I want them to realize and to apply local solutions to the ideas that I'm going to ask them about instead of telling them or speaking down to them at any point in time. Some things to do uh, in the realm of networking. Okay? Sometimes we want to enable native network leaders to lead or attend regional security meetings. And so this does not necessarily mean offering you know, security patrols. It can be something as simple as at an embassy function, talking to um, the host government. Uh, if they're invited, for example, at an embassy function, 
and saying, hey, uh, I heard about this one religious leader or this one social leader or this one tribal leader. Wouldn't it be great if he was allowed to come to X, Y, and Z conference? In some cases, it's uh, talking to our sisters and brothers at the Department of State and, and very ethically and truthfully explaining that, hey, this is somebody perhaps that should be granted a visa, so perhaps you can talk to your partners uh, in the host governments of other countries to allow for easy travel of certain individuals without them knowing. So you want to do this somewhat under the radar, uh, informally, um, you know, maybe do the background check or do a lot of the work uh, for um, folks uh, in the civil service and foreign service uh, to help them allow them to identify people um, that they want to uh, be able to allow to cross uh, certain boundaries, to be able to fly in certain areas, and to attend or lead regional meetings. We'll talk a little more about specifics, and I really want to hear ideas from you guys as well, because I know many of you have had um, experience in this. The next thing is you want to perhaps connect consonant leaders. Uh, and this is something as simple, and I know I talked about this in seminar, as you don't have to, you know, have a formal meeting, um, you don't have to have a key leader engagement or anything like that. This is simple, as, once again, as using a 3 by 5 card and writing on a pencil certain telephone numbers, you don't even have to put names by them, and then giving those to a trusted person, an intermediary, if you will, who will then provide it to a leader of a certain consonant network. And so we've seen in some cases where you'd have perhaps someone uh, in northern Kenya um, reach out if they speak the same language, they both speak French or they both speak English, for example, speak out to someone in Niger, and they can share lessons learned, they can share best practices, and they can find inspiration from one another. And most people have access to a cell phone, and so oftentimes these kind of communications can occur, and very often... Uh, people, they want to learn, they want to know. They're in the throes of trying to uh, counter violent extremism. This is a, something that they believe in doing. They're oftentimes putting their lives at risk, uh, their families at risk, their fortunes at risk, uh, and they want to be able to do uh, even better. And so learning with people that are uh, in more or less the same boat, even if they're in a different culture, uh, in a different area of a continent, a different area of the world, it can be helpful. And finally, of course, uh, we want to allow them to amplify messages. As I said before, I think it was in uh, seminar um, one or two, uh, it's lesson one or two, um, you want to ensure that constant systems have the ability to amplify their networks as they wish to do on their own timeline by their own means. And sometimes, again, this is a simple, and I've done this multiple times, and it has had effect um, that is writing telephone numbers of radio stations, of television stations, of newspapers, and allowing those tribal clan or network leaders to, if they want to, if they wish to, and very often they are very proud of what they do, to reach out to radio stations, to reach out to, I mean, even The Economist and The New York Times, but to reach out to perhaps regionally, um, influential media sources to tell their story. So perhaps other people can take lessons learned, other people can learn best practices, and other people 
can find inspiration. Now, if you are forced to conduct strategic communications, if you have to put out a message, if you find yourself um, in a command that says, okay, what's the message? You have to put out some kind of a message that is somehow going to affect or be part of this consonance and resonance tradecraft. What I'd recommend is any kind of direct messaging is only to ensure that constant systems know that any security boon that they feel is temporary. It's only to allow them to advance more quickly. It's to explain that there is no Superman. The cavalry is not coming. The onus, the responsibility, is enduringly on their shoulders. And if there is any U.S. presence, or much more likely presence by U.S. allied government forces, they have to understand the onus is on them to act, that is, the native networks to act enduringly. And that any kind of, you know, if, if there is, God forbid, any money that comes in or arms that come in, or if there's any temporary security, that this is a temporary thing. And so on a strategic level, on a global level, we see, uh, and this is really my conclusion here, the balance stream is seized on specific local socioeconomic, cultural, emotional, and psychological opportunities that differ in each village, each city, in each city block in order to embed in society, in order to try to influence future generations. So one worldwide counterterrorism strategy may not be appropriate. Perhaps there's no silver bullet. So perhaps instead we can focus on the tradecraft or mindset to allow the strategic conditions for operators, this is US operators and our allies, to succeed. And that is by, with, and through local constant systems, finding ways that we can protect, allow, leverage, empower them in the fields of development, security, and diplomacy. Thank you.